conceived it. She insisted this messenger of God, even named him Gabriel. Gabriel came and appeared to me, revealed himself to me, and said this was God's plan. She promised that she had remained faithful to her marriage pledge. Now, when a couple pledges marriage to each other, in this time, it is... It is like they are already married. In fact, to the outside community, they are supposed to act like they are married. Although they live with their respective parents and they spend the year preparing for marriage, not doing everything that married people do, they have a binding contract to each other that can only be broken through divorce. The deacon continued, Psalm 33. He said, for the word of the Lord holds true. We can trust everything he does. In fact, he loves whatever is just and good, and the unfailing love of the Lord fills the earth. Now, Joseph loved God. He knew of this unfailing love, or he thought he knew of this unfailing love. Maybe that's a better way to say it. But he truly loved God's word. In fact, he longed to read God's word. He longed to have his own scroll, his own scriptures. He completely enjoyed any time the rabbis would get up and teach God's instruction. He thought about it as he worked as a carpenter. He thought about it every morning and every evening, what it would be like to just delight in God's law, as the Psalms say. And he was determined to remain faithful to God's law. When Mary told him that she was pregnant, he knew that he had to do something. He prayed, oh God, I I can't let Mary's actions go without consequence. She must have been unfaithful to your law. I I have to break this engagement off. In fact, I would be breaking your law if I stayed with her. The rabbis teach from Leviticus that if I remained married to her, it would be like I was committing adultery. I've got to hold on to what the law requires. Meanwhile, the deacon continues reading Psalm 33. He says that the Lord merely spoke and the heavens were created. He breathed the word, and the stars were born. He assigned the sea and its boundaries, and he locked the oceans in their vast reservoirs. Let the whole world fear the Lord, and let everyone stand in awe of the Lord, for when he spoke, the world began. It appeared at his command. Again, Joseph listening to the words, seeing those words, he imagines what it would be like for just to hear the word, heavens, spring forth. That's what he imagined it would be. And then all of a sudden clouds appear and, and sky appears and the clouds just start rolling across the sky, big puffy ones like they're tubing down a lazy river or something. He almost smiles at the power and the majesty that this God would produce. And something 
stuck in that moment of God's reverence, in that moment where he should fear and be in awe of God. I mean, if this God is the supreme being, if this God knows the ocean's size, if this God knows the depth of the sea, he should be, he should be revered. I, I, can't, I can't marry her. I, in fact, I need to make the divorce public. Not only can I not marry her, I've got to make an example of her. Not, not, they, they're not going to stone her. They stopped stoning the people according to the law many, many years before this. But public divorce would bring public shame. And in our culture of honor and shame, maybe that would turn everyone's heart back towards the Lord. Yes, Joseph thinks. This is what I'll do. This is the way that I can remain faithful to the law. Phasing in and out, Joseph returns back to the orator's words, the assistant's words, as he he is sounding like he's beginning the crescendo and preparing the landing of this Psalm 33. He says, the Lord frustrates the plans of the nations and thwarts all their schemes. But the Lord's plans stand firm forever. His intentions can never be shaken. What joy for the nation whose God is the Lord. What joy for the nation whose God is the Lord, the people that he has chosen for his inheritance. Now other men in in Joseph's position, they claimed their right and their power to make examples of their wives. You know, a public divorce would bring public shame, but But Joseph knew, just as those words were rolling around of frustrating the plans of the nations and that the Lord's plans stand firm forever, he knew, he knew that those women before him who'd been made examples, that public shame didn't bring the people back to worship God. It just hurt them. It just gave the the people a reason to deflect their anger or their selfishness or their sin towards them instead of back at themselves to truly come back to God. Joseph knew that. And in that moment, as he's rolling around these phrases in his head of God's plan standing firm forever, he finally made up his mind. He decided that only God could dismiss Mary. If she was not part of his chosen inheritance, he would move her. It wasn't his power and his authority that could do that. No public divorce. Private. Quiet. As little harm as possible. He didn't want Mary to face that kind of shame. He would get the two required witnesses, and he'd bring the divorce papers over. They'd sign, and he'd be done. Deacon sat down from this part of the scripture reading, 
and walked across as the, the teacher that's in the local synagogue there stands up and he starts walking towards the front. And as they're exchanging places, Joseph manages to slip out undetected. He kind of shuffles home in the morning light. He's squinting in the sun and he collapses on this little cot in the corner of their unfinished home. The home that he had so many plans for. The things that he wanted, the little children that were supposed to run around in it, half finished and completely heartbroken. He lays down exhausted from his morning conversation with God. Or maybe, maybe, it was just a morning conversation with himself. See, people think that the world is divided into people who worship and people who don't. I mean, most Americans, right? Most Americans would say that they control their own destiny. Like, I make choices, and I follow those choices, I get to the end of what I want. And for the most part, that seems to be how we live. We don't say that we worship, we don't say that we put our worth or our value in other things or other people. Most of the people that walk around us and orientate their lives or revolve their lives near us, their lives aren't orientated around the Bible. My wife and I were having dinner with some friends last night, and they're like, hey, I'm reading the Bible. And I'm like, that's great. I don't, you know, why people feel like they have the need to tell me things, you know, about their spiritual life because I'm a pastor. They just seem to throw stuff out there. So anyway, they're like, yeah, we're reading the Bible as a church. I'm like, that's awesome. You're a church that reads the Bible. Great. It's like, yeah. Yeah, we got to this story. Samson. And it was the first one since Adam and Eve that I remembered as a kid. And I'm like, wow. There's a lot of stories between there. Like Cain and Abel, the flood, Moses, Abraham, Joshua, taking the land, walking around Jericho, the purple slushies, you know, if you grew up in the 90s. And, but Samson, and if that's you, you're like, I didn't even know Samson. That's okay. That's okay. I, I think that, It's safe to say, my point is, it's safe to say that most people don't orientate themselves around the scriptures. And they would say that even even the things that we heard in Psalm 33 of the Lord speaking the word and, and bringing forth creation or God knowing the boundaries of the ocean, we would say that that was for a people long, long ago. We have science and we have technology and we're more civilized we're more, we just, we, we're just more evolved. And therefore, we don't worship. But if we really look at what the definition of worship is, placing value or worth in someone or something, and that's just the general definition. I know we talked about a different one last week, but let's just go there for a second. Then I believe that everybody is already worshiping something. I think we all put value in objects, we put value in people, we put value in moments. We place value in, we we place value in things or people that we believe have worth or have power that can change where we're at. 
And I think our lives are already orientated around things that we worship. Just think about it. If, if this general definition is placing value or worth in something, then we might be able to say the word value just simply means what's it worth? This has to do with money, but if you, were to, if you were to lose something and it wasn't that big a deal to you, chances are it wasn't very expensive, right? At least that's what I used to say when I would lose something and my parents were like, where's that thing I gave you? Oh, it was only like $2, which didn't go over very well with my parents. But this value of money, one way to look at this is if I worship, just go along with me for a minute. You might not agree yet. We you know, we're all at different socioeconomic places, but I believe we all have a little bit of extra money. Just a little bit of leftover. I don't have much, but I have a little. I get a little allowance. What do I do with that extra money? Where do I spend it? Some people used to say, you show me, this doesn't work quite as much because we don't write many checks, but some mentor of mine said, you show me your checkbook, I'll show you what you worship. The other, the other part of this definition um, isn't just value, it's also honor. You know, the word honor just means to place value in someone. We honor our parents, I think, when we listen to them. I think we honor our bosses when we do what they ask of us. Part of honor is not, not money, but it's time. We're all busy, the world is filled, but we all have extra time. Where do we spend that free time? What do we think about? What do we do with it? Show me where you spend it. I'll be able to tell you what you value. Maybe even what you idolize. See, I think everybody worships. Everybody puts ultimate value or worth somewhere. The question isn't if you worship. The question really is, big moment of the day, are you worshiping something that will distort your life or are you worshiping the one thing that can transform your life? Now, a masterful writing of this and actually made into a movie is the very first Harry Potter movie, J.K. Rowling demonstrates this reality that we all worship something with this little mirror that the young orphaned hero sees and discovers. Take a look.
that again, Harry? I see that you, like so many before you, have discovered the delights of the mirror of Arisette. I trust by now you realize what it does. Let me give you a clue. The happiest man on earth would look into the mirror and see only himself exactly as he is. So then it shows us what we want, whatever we want. Yes. And no, it shows us nothing more or less than the deepest and most desperate desires of our hearts. Now you, Harry, who have never known your family, you see them standing beside you. Well, remember this, Harry. This mirror gives us neither knowledge or truth. Men have wasted away in front of it, even gone mad. That is why tomorrow it will be moved to a new home. And I must ask you not to go looking for it again. I don't know if you caught that Eris said is desire backwards. But if we were to look at our own mirror of Erised, everyone would see something. Everyone longs for something. Everyone has a deep and desperate desire. We all put our hope somewhere. Maybe you've said something like, if I just had, I'd be happy. If only I could, then I'd finally get it. Or maybe when I get here, then I'll be satisfied. Whatever that deepest desire is, is what we worship. In fact, I would say it even controls us. I mean, maybe you're not convinced, but did you see the look of shock and the look of pain on Harry's face when his professor turned around and told him that the mirror was going to be moved? What? For a kid who'd never seen his parents, all he wanted to do was look in that mirror. It controlled him. I mean, even Dumbledore, the professor, said, men have wasted away in front of this mirror. It trapped him. Think back to the last time you were freaked out about something. Maybe it was the stock market crash, or, or, or crumble, I guess it wasn't truly a crash, right? But uh, a crumble in 2008 or so, and thousands of dollars were lost. The people who freaked out about that could have said, I'm controlled by money. They could have said, I, I worship money. Or the person who, who lives in constant fear of what others think about them. He has completely orientated his life around the praise or the criticism of others. He's worshiping those comments. Or the next person who can't imagine living without this romantic relationship. This person, she'd be completely dependent on that other person. She'd be controlled by that other person. And I would say she's 
worshiping that relationship. Uh, There's an author who actually captured this. Her name's Rebecca Pippert. She writes this book, Out of the Salt Shaker. Kind of a fun title. But she says, whatever controls us is our God. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people that he or she wants to please. One thing is certain. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. Whoever or whatever we've made Lord is what we worship. So let's return to our quiet carpenter, Joseph. See, if Joseph puts all of his worth and his honor and his desire in Mary and their marriage, then he's going to be crushed. He's worshiping this relationship. He's really worshiping Mary. And if she is happy, then he might be happy. And if she's not happy, then he could be twisted and distorted. Or if Joseph is worshiping what other people say, if he cares so much about that, he'll be forever trapped by those opinions. The worship of people's praise will twist and distort his life. And if Joseph places too high of a value on being religious, then he's going to be distorted by the law and not transformed by the true Lord. I think she's right. This author, whatever controls us, is our God. See, Matthew writes, though, that after Joseph considers staying with Mary, public divorce, private divorce, an angel appears to him and says in a dream, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what she has conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do and he took Mary home as his wife but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave the name Jesus. See, this angelic messenger of God met Joseph and and helped him face potentially his idols. I mean, we don't know, we can't get inside Joseph's mind, but if he had this idol of keeping the law... And then he feared himself breaking it or Mary breaking it, it was going to twist his life. If, if he had this idol of making the mo- Mary just the happiest woman in the world and he'd be the best husband in the world and he would matter the most to Mary, well, she now has the son of God as her son. There's a really good chance that she might take a little more interest in Jesus than him. I know that never happens in marriage where a woman, a wife, like adores her husband and then has a child and then all of a sudden adores the child. Um, But it's taken away that idol. And if he has an idol of being a great father, I don't think he's going to compare to God. But he can adopt Joseph. He can do what the angel said. 
this very, very important piece of the story that, that everybody passes over is when Joseph adopts Jesus, even though he's considered illegitimate, he now has a place in a family line. He now has value in that home, in the world standards, and he now has the responsibility to name that child. And it's only recognized by what the father names the child, at least at that time. So let's get really practical for just a couple minutes. If I'm a career-focused person, say I'm a career-focused dad, and this Christmas I decide that I'm going to spend more time with my wife and my kids, and, and so I'm going to try and do less things at work, that's great thought. If I keep worshiping my career, if I keep thinking that everything about success or power or significance matters, then all I'm going to do is try and squeeze time that I don't have out of an every, ever tight schedule, and I'm going to end up frustrated and angry, and it's going to potentially be worse for my family and me than, than just not doing anything at all. See, Whatever we worship that's not God will twist our life. But if we worship the one true God, that will transform our life. This, this career-focused person would have to confess the idols, the false gods of money or success or power or career in order to be transformed. See, nothing less than re orientating ourselves around this one true God will change our lives. If you are living for achievement, it might have gotten you a lot of success in life, but the minute that you fail, achievement is going to turn its back on you. It'll never forgive you. It'll hate you. If, if your God is living for love and someone dies or that relationship gets, fails or breaks down, it'll never, never forgive you. You'll hate yourself. People have wasted away worshiping other gods. But, friends, this God who comes as Jesus. Not only can he transform our life, he's worthy of our worship. This psalm says that God sees everything. From his throne, he looks. He makes our hearts. He understands what we do. Nothing else compares to that kind of worship, that kind of power, that kind of value. A God who sees us. A God who, who understands us because he made us. A God who is sovereign over everything. And let's not forget two of the most important things in that story. A God who is with us. He's called Emmanuel. And a God who's named Jesus. Joshua, or Yeshua in Hebrew, meaning God saves. He will save his people from their sins. I think it's safe to say he will save his people from their false gods. Where do you put your hope? 
what are things that you think are going to bring ultimate value to your life, but really are just going to crush you if you ever fail at them? The psalm ends, the psalm 33, it ends with this charge to do what Joseph did and worship the one true God. It says, we put our hope in the Lord. He is our help and our shield or our protection. In him, our hearts rejoice. That's worship. We trust in his holy name. That's worship. Let your unfailing love surround us, God. That's worship. Knowing that the unfailing, the uncompromising, the never-ending, the all-powerful love of God surrounds us. That's worship. And our hope is in God alone. That's worship. That will change your life. Jesus is the only one that will satisfy our worship and transform our life. And he's the only one who will forgive us if we ever fail. Why would we not want to worship this God? He's the only one who died for us. He's the only one who unconditionally loves us. He's the only God that ever came and lived among us. I don't want to tell you what it is for you, but I bet the Holy Spirit does. Just think about what the Holy Spirit could and would say to you right now. God's Spirit might be telling you, what false gods do you need to give up? Because they're getting in the way of worshiping the one true God. And if... If this Jesus is the one true God, if he's the one that will satisfy our soul, if we give our worship to him, if he's the only one who transforms our life, then who do we need to tell? Who do we need to talk about Jesus with? Not that we have it all figured out, but just that we figured out who the one person that can transform our life is. And if you're super freaked out to share your faith, then just hand him a postcard in love and say, come to worship one of the next three weeks. This God is the God I want you to know. He's changed my life. And he wants to change all of ours. Will you pray with me? God, I praise you for being supreme and awesome, but often those words can come across so abstractly. Sometimes we might even use phrases like one true God and it just sounds too religious. But I pray, God, we would not miss what it means to worship you, what it means to trust you, what it means to put our ultimate hope, our ultimate worth, our ultimate value in you alone. God, let us respond to you. Let us tell others about you. Let's throw down the things that we think will give us hope, but really will just destroy our lives. Let us hear your smile and your praise, for you're worthy of all 
of our worship. We love you, God. Help us to be like Joseph and respond with our whole heart. Amen.